Let me ask you to join me in taking your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. When God's promises are real to us and the experience of His presence is at the front of our mind, then our faith is fueled and we find it easy to trust Him. We know that He loves us, we know that He's near, and we find it easy to have faith. That kind of experience is kind of like a hug from your father. That when your father embraces you and tells you that he loves you, then you are assured of it even more than the times in which you are away from him. Now that doesn't change the fact that your father loves you when the two of you are just sitting on the couch or when he's away on a trip. But when he embraces you, you know it more clearly. You're, you're more confident of something that's already true. And there are specific times in our lives as Christians when the presence and promises of God are like that hug. That they are so real to us. That that God's presence is so real that, that we know that He's on our side. And that kind of embrace, when God reveals Himself to us in that way, fuels our confidence that He loves us. But the, the, the fact is that there are other times when it feels like God is not our Father. Because our present crises suggest that God is far away. And, and so while he, he may be like our Father on the trip, He's still there, He still loves us. And so how we respond in times like this, in times of crises, will determine the strength of our faith. And the natural thing for us to do in those times is to trust in our own schemes and our own maneuverings to get to a place where we can have safety on our own apart from God. And that's where we find David here in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Let me read our text for us beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's, Nabal's wife, a widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev, or the south, of Judah. And against the Negev of the Jeremelites. And against the Negev of the Kenites. 
David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Tonight we're going to see that, that we have to be careful of a God-excluded pursuit of, protect, of protection. That is, we seek protection apart from God. We have to be careful of that kind of pursuit. We, we're looking for refuge, but we're looking for it in the wrong place. That's, I think, what David is doing here. He, he's in a place where he has a present crisis and it leads him away from God to try to come up with his own machinations or his own, own scheming in order to get away and, and find refuge. In order to understand this chapter, we need to keep some things in perspective regarding what has been going on up until this point. Because sometimes what happens is the fear of our present crisis minimizes the reality of God in our mind, like when our father's away on a trip. We, we forget the fact that we still are our fathers and He still loves us. Now that's because the present crisis where he's, He doesn't seem near, He seems like He's far away, He seems like He doesn't love us. And, and so it's in those times in which our faith needs to be bolstered. We need to, to, um, to, to have a firm faith. So we need, to, we, need to look about, we need to think about the history of where we've been here. First, the history of God's promises to David throughout this book of 1 Samuel. What has God done for David? Um, and then secondly, the history of God's faithfulness. So what, what kind of things has God promised to David? And how has God been faithful to David? And if we were just to, to, to just do a little quiz time, could have you raise your hand. You could tell me a number of these, but I'll just tick them off here real quick. Uh, one after the other. Okay, first, David is anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. God had promised, you will be king. And he was anointed as such. Then in chapter 18, Jonathan, remember, had given David his robe as a promise that, hey, the throne's not going to pass down. Normally, the throne would come down from my father, the king, to me. But here's my robe. Here's my, my princely vestments. They belong to you because you're going to be the king. That is, the, the king's gonna, kingdom's going to go from Saul to David. In chapter 20, Jonathan reminds David that he will be king. Listen, I know that you will be king, he says in 1 Samuel 20. At, uh, towards the end of that chapter, he reminds David of his commitment to David. That David, hey, you and I are on the same team. I know my dad's against you and he's trying to kill you, but, but I'm with you, David, and I'm going to be with you to the end. At least as long as he lived. In chapter 24, Saul even promises that David will be king. Remember, this is where David had found Saul in the cave and he spared Saul's life. And at the end of that, Saul says, David, now I know that you will be king. In chapter 25, Abigail assures David that he will be king. In verse 30, she says, I know that God has appointed you as ruler over Israel. And then in chapter 26, the second um, close encounter that David has with Saul where he could have killed Saul. And at the end of that exchange between David and Saul, Saul reassures David that he will prevail in everything that he does. 
Here is, I think, some indications that God is promising to give to David what he had said he would do. That he will become the king. So he has all these promises that he should be holding on to and thinking about in, in this time where this crisis comes up and he thinks, you know what, maybe God's not here. He needs to go back to those promises, doesn't he? The other thing that he needed to remember and that we need to remember in, in times of crisis is the history of God's faithfulness. Remember in chapter 17, God had delivered David from a lion and a bear. And then in chapter 17, a giant. In chapter 18, David defeated the Philistines and the people acknowledged it for him. David has slain his ten thousands. Even there, Saul had acknowledged David's success. David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him, the text says. God protected David again in chapter 18 from Saul's spear. Remember, Saul tried to kill him. Later on in that chapter, God protected David from Saul's putting him into battle against the Philistines. Maybe if I put him out to the front lines and he goes against the Philistines, he'll get wiped out and he'll die and my throne will be protected. But God protected him. In chapter 19, God protected David from Saul's plot to kill him through Jonathan. He tries to get Jonathan on himself. Jonathan, don't you see how much of a threat he is to my throne? To our throne. This is going to be yours, Jonathan. And Jonathan doesn't buy it. God protects him in that way. God protected David from the Philistines a third time in the middle of chapter 19. And then he protected David from Saul's spear a third time. Saul tries to kill him. God protected David from Saul's plot to kill him in his own bed, you remember. And his wife had to help him escape. In chapter 20, God protected David from the schemes of Saul when Jonathan learned of his anger. Jonathan finds out that Saul is very serious on killing him, and so Jonathan sends him away. In chapter 21, God, remember, provides food and a weapon for David when he was desperate and alone from Abiathar, the priest, or Himelech. In chapter 22, God provided for David a group of fighting men who would protect him and go with him. In chapter 23, God provided a prophet and a priest to be able to speak to David on behalf of God. That is, what is it that I want you to do in battles? In chapter 24, God protected David from disaster by, by granting him the restraint to, to refrain from killing Saul and then to refrain from killing Nabal in chapter 25 and then to, to refrain from killing Saul again in chapter 26. And so we have all this evidence of God's continued promise and His continued faithfulness, but for some reason... David's recent past, his, his most um, present crisis, causes him to think that God would not deliver him from this explosive king, Saul. And so the truth is that sometimes there is this overwhelming fear that our present Christ, crisis will win. And it minimizes the presence and the promises of God. All the things that are objective that we know are true. God has delivered me. God has promised to me. And yet we see all these subjective things in front of us and we don't know our future. And so we turn to our own scheming. Now, the reason I think David is acting without faith here is because of two things. Number one, there is no mention of God in this passage. And number two, David fears for his life. Notice verse 1 of chapter 27. In this moment of weakness, David convinces himself that, that God is opposed to him. He says, verse 1, 
Now David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to go to the Philistines. This word perish is used only two other times in 1 Samuel. It's not the word that just normally means die. It's a word that means to be swept away. In chapter 12, verse 25, Samuel uses it to warn the people that if they do not obey God and His King, they will be swept away. They will perish. And then I'll show you the the second time, the only other time it's used. Chapter 26, verse 10. Would you turn there with me? Chapter 26, verse 10. Here David is describing what God's vengeance on Saul will look like. He says, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike Saul, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish, be swept away. So now turn to chapter 27, verse 1, and notice how David's using it. This is what he just got done saying. This is how God's going to, to take care of Saul. He's going to sweep him away. But now notice what he says to himself. Now I will be swept away one day. In other words, if I don't protect myself, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be forgotten. This promise of the the kingdom, this promise of the throne is not going to happen. And notice, David said to himself, verse 1, or in other words, David said to his own heart. You see what David's doing here? He's speaking things that are not true. God had promised that He would be the king, that He would receive the kingdom, that He would sit on the throne. And yet David's saying to himself, I'm not going to be king. God's promises are not going to come true for me. You see, all the history and experience that David had experienced pointed to the fact that God was good and faithful and a loving Father. But but David was speaking to himself untruth. He had convinced himself that God was going to allow him to die at the hand of this angry, explosive king, King Saul. And so he makes a plan. He says, I'm going to go down to the Philistines, and certainly if I find refuge there, Saul will stop chasing me. Now, it actually does, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 4, because after he finds refuge there, now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. David finds his refuge in Philistia, Precisely Gath, one of the five Philistine cities. Apparently he thought that if God's not going to come through for me and protect me from Saul, then I'm going to deliver myself. And so he seeks asylum with Achish, king of Gath. Now if you remember, this has happened before. Chapter 21, David had done this. After he left the priest of Nob, Ahimelech, he heads over to the Philistine area. And there... He goes to Gath and tries to find refuge there, but he's quickly recognized. And so he pretends to be insane. He allows the, the slobber to kind of go down his, his beard and so on. The difference, though, between chapter 21 and here in chapter 27 is that in chapter 21 we had two psalms that told us about his heart, like where he was focused, where his heart was. And that's Psalms 34 and 56, saying, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. But this time, he seeks refuge in Gath, apparently without a word from God or without a thought about God. There's no thought of, you know, I'm going to check with this. Remember, he's got a priest and a prophet with him. I'm going to check with this priest to see if, this prophet, if, if this is what God wants me to do. God, should I go and seek refuge in Gath? There's no mention of that at all. 
And so for those reasons, there's no mention of God, and David seems to think that God's promises are not going to come true. For those two reasons, I think that David is acting in fear. He's acting in weakness. And this was no insignificant circumstance for David. Now if you think about it from his perspective, remember he's responsible now not only for his own life and the life of his two wives, but also for the lives of his 600 men as well as their families who are traveling along with them. And before, it was just him, right? It was just him that was fleeing from Saul all on his own. And it's a little bit easier to hide when you have one person. But when you have a couple thousand people, which he probably had with all the, his army and their families, it's a little bit more difficult to hide, isn't it? Whatever the reason, Achish decided to accept him this time. Maybe Achish operated on the principle that, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the, my enemy is Saul. And David is this, an enemy of Saul, so I'll be David's friend. Perhaps the fame of David as a warrior had grown since the last time that David came. And so Achish now had seen some of David's exploits and that he had won some battles. And whatever the case, Achish knew that he could use David for his services as kind of a mercenary. And so the plan works. Saul finds out that he's in Gath and he stops chasing him. Sometimes the fear of present crisis minimizes the reality of God. Secondly, we see that sometimes our God-excluded plan actually works. Sometimes our God-excluded plan actually works. David seeks protection from the king of Gath in verses 5-7. through In other words, he's already there. He's already received asylum from the king of Gath. Now he says, will you give us some of our own land? There's a couple things going on here. David likely is feeling uncomfortable hanging out in enemy territory, right, in the city of Gath. The people were likely asking questions, like, what's this guy doing here and all of his army? Aren't these our enemies? I mean, we got this rogue group who's joining up with us, who, you know, who killed our, they killed our giant, our champion. He's the one who did it. And why are we taking him in? Why is he hanging out in our city? David probably didn't want them looking over his shoulder all the time, and so he he wanted this land outside that was a little bit more free. Some some kind of open country where they could live and just kind of settle down their roots. He, he'd been on the run for years because of Saul. So he wants to settle down. So he asks Achish, will you, will you give me some of my own land? And Achish does it. He gives him this land, Ziklag, which is about 25 miles southwest of Gath. And it was a little bit more remote. Outside of the main city, wouldn't have to deal with a whole lot of the Philistines. He kind of settled down his roots, established some homes and so on. This city was initially given to Simeon and Judah by God in the conquest. But the problem is, if you remember through the end of Joshua and into Judges, that, that the, the, many of the twelve tribes of Israel didn't drive out all the Canaanites that were in their land. And so they didn't get all the land that, that was, was offered to them. And as a result, they lived among the Canaanites. And the next thing you know, they're living... Uh, in the Canaanite land. The Canaanites take the land back over. And so this land should have been Israel's in the first place, but amazingly, Achish, this enemy, gives it back to David. He says, it's yours. I'm giving you the deed to the property. This asylum from Saul lasted for 16 months in verse 7. So he finds a little bit of freedom 
And then in verses 8 through 12, he deceives Achish. Now, one of the apparent agreements that David had with King Achish, the king of Gath, was that David would go out and fight for Achish. He would go out and take care of some of these battles. And so David was supposed to go to the Israelite territory, the southern land of Israel. Notice verse 12. Um, So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among the people of Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. So apparently he's done well. He's actually gone up against his own men, effectively, his own people, and he's killed them. But that's not actually what happened. He did go to his own land. He went to the southern region of, of Israel, which is what the Negev, Negev means, just the Hebrew word for south, the south land. And, and yet, what David did was not defeat Israel, Philistines' enemies. Instead, he defeated Israel's enemies who were living in that area. Again, back to the conquest. They're supposed to take care of all the land. They're supposed to drive out the Canaanites. And Israel didn't do that. And so instead, the Israelites are living among the Canaanites And in some cases, there are more Canaanites than Israelites. And so what David does is he goes back to his own land, yes. But he doesn't kill his own people. He kills the Canaanites. And the reason I know that is because of verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were inhabitants of the land from ancient times. So all these foreign... um, these foreign nations, these, these, um, un- these godless people who were living in the land, these are the ones who David went up against and raided. And then David protects his own skin in verses 9 through 11. He attacked the land, verse 9. He attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive. Why? Uh, verse 11. David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so has David done. So what would happen if he, if he allowed someone to live of the Amalekites or the, the Geshurites, then, then they're going to come back to the Philistines and say, Achish, you know what David did? He didn't kill any Israelites. He killed us. And I'm a survivor to tell you. And so what he did is he killed every single one, woman and child. Man, woman, and child. Make sure that none of them could come back and give a, 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 a true report of what took place. So David comes back to Achish and, sa- and Achish says, well, what have you been doing? He's like, well, I actually raided the southern land of Israel. That's great. You're on my side. Verse 12, right? I'm going to make you my servant forever. We're going to be a team. And what David was doing was actually deceiving him to try to te- protect not only his own people, but his own skin. And so he speaks ambiguously about what he's doing. He says, actually, I, when I went to the southern region... I didn't kill my own people, but he just allows Achish to believe that. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, David's plan begins to unravel. Over this 16-month period, David had become so faithful in the eyes of Achish that, that, that the king of Gath proposed that David would permanently join forces with him and begin attacking David's own people. And so he says in verse 1, at the end of the verse, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. We're going to go and attack the Israelites. You've weakened them. You've you've won a couple battles already in Israel, so let's go. I'm coming with you this time. So there's no hiding now. This is an amazing proposal, really, if you think about it, that David was the one that killed Gath's champion just, just a few years earlier. And now the king's saying, Hey, will you be my personal bodyguard? 
You know, I, I recognize that you've changed, you've changed allegiances. This is a major climax in the story because David has a choice to make. Is he going to protect his own skin and go ahead with the battle against the Israelites and attack them? Be on the Philistine side and attack and kill his own people? Or will he abandon the Philistines at the risk of his own life? See, David had a, a, a problem here, didn't he? He couldn't fight against his own people. He had already passed up on killing Saul when he had two clear opportunities to do so. So why would he kill his own people in battle? But the other problem is, what would happen if he declined Achish? What happens if, he, if his whole plan came to the light of what he had been doing? Well, the king, I think, would turn on him and he would know that David's a fraud and a schemer and now he would, he would be on the run once again, not only from Saul, but from the king of, of Gath of the Philistines. Well, notice David's answer in verse 2 of chapter 28. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So, do you notice how ambiguous this answer is again? Just like he said, you know, I went to the southern region of, the, of Israel. He didn't tell him what he did there, but I just went there and I raided the people. Again, here he says, David, you're going to come be on my side? You're going to come and attack the Israel with me? And David says, you're going to know what I'm going to do. And so for, for Achish, he thinks it's a yes. And yet David's saying, you're, no, you're going to know what I'm going to do because I'm not going to do that. And so he says words that can actually mean two different things. And the story's going to pick up in chapter 29. So if you're wondering how it ends, you'll have to wait until then until we find out what's going to happen. Okay, cliffhanger, two weeks. We'll pick it back up. Actually, three weeks to get to chapter 29. But before we learn about how David gets out of this fighting, we're going to see Saul's crippling fear that leads him to talk about uh, to talk to the spirit of Samuel. That's, that's next time in chapter 28. Let me give you um, some, some applications to consider tonight. Number one, be careful of the God-excluded pursuit of safety. This really, I think, is the main point of the text. Now, if we're, we're thinking it from, of it from David's perspective, we, we shouldn't fault him too much because he is seeking safety. He's trying to protect himself and probably a couple thousand people. So in that sense, we can't fault him for wanting to reach, get out of the reach of Saul's grasp. But God's desire for David was more than simply getting out of the reach of Saul's grasp. God's desire for David was to trust him even when it looked like his crisis would overwhelm him. How many times do we act like David? Where we have a challenge that we're trying to get out of, trying, trying to overcome, and this challenge won't go away. And we seek God and He doesn't respond immediately or how we want or He gives us a temporary relief and we're just tired of battling. And so we seek another solution that would exclude God and pursue safety or, or removal from that challenge another way. You see, when, when comfort or safety become our highest goal, when that's our main concern, I have to get out of this trial. When that becomes our main concern, the desire to do God's will is quickly set aside for the sake of relief, because what we've done is we've actually made relief our God. 
It's not, God, I will go through anything because you are my God and I trust you. It is, God, I'll go through anything as long as it's not this. I have to have relief. Be careful of a God-excluded pursuit of safety. Number two, be careful of a God-excluded plan that works. We might look at the situation and say, well, what's the problem? Right? It all works out for David. I mean, you know the, the, the farther history. You might not know the immediate result of this, this battle that they're about to go to. But you do know that David becomes king later, right? And that David becomes over, an overwhelming success as king. He unites the entire nation. For the first time since the conquest, the nation will again receive the land. They will have the land and they will be united. Which is really, in some ways... Um, unlike much of the rest of, of the history following David, right? Because the kingdom becomes divided shortly after David's death. And so we might look at this and say, well, what's the problem? It all worked out. We could say it this way. The ends justify the means. David made it to the end, which was for him to become king. So it doesn't matter how he got there. David wanted to find safety for his fighting men and their families. He was sick of running, sick of hiding, sick of constantly looking over his shoulder, wanted a little bit of relief, and he found it in an enemy king. So what's the problem? Not only did this plan to find safety work, but but the plan to not turn on Israel worked. That is, that he didn't even have to attack Israel. So he was able to avoid it. So we might look at something like this and say, well, what's the big deal. But but here again, God wants something more than a workable plan. There's lots of plans that work. All right, we can get out of danger in a number of different ways that completely exclude God. But God's not pleased in any of those. God's saying, listen, follow what I have for you. Trust in me. Look at the promises that I've given to you and the faithfulness that I've shown to you and, and trust me to do it again. I've already promised you that you will be king. I think we are like David. We might be quick to condemn David and think, you know, we would never do something like this. But consider how closely our circumstances mirror David's. Have you been the recipient of any of God's promises? Has God ever promised anything to you? Of which... His scripture expects us to believe will come true. Have you ever experienced the joy of God's past faithfulness? Has God done something good for you along the way that was in keeping with His promise? And, and, and like David, have your circumstances ever betrayed your confidence in God like, like the feeling when your dad's far away? In other words, has there ever been a time when your circumstances have have pelted you over and over again with the false idea that God is far away and even that God is against you? It's not only that God's not here, He's actually opposed to me. He's going to destroy me. He's not on my side. And is is this not David? He had God's promises. He had God's faithfulness, but, but the problem was that his current circumstances and his constant running from Saul betrayed his confidence in God. Isn't it amazing how 
all the truth that we know about God can just fly away in an instant when our eyes are turned away from God's promises and His faithfulness onto our current storm. Like with Peter on the water, right? He had seen the incarnate God work on his behalf. He had heard promises from Jesus, had seen His miracles, and yet in a moment of weakness, as he's suspended on top of the water, he turns his eyes away from Jesus onto the storm and he starts to sink. Why? Because he's got his eyes off of what got him there in the first place. Maybe a positive example might be helpful. Someone who did this well instead of Peter who failed in that way. Joseph. Joseph had heard the promises of God that one day your family's going to bow down to you, Joseph. And Joseph had experienced God's faithfulness as a young boy, but then his life changed in a hurry when his brothers betrayed him and his boss, Potiphar, betrayed him and his fellow prisoner that was supposed to tell the Pharaoh about him betrayed him. And yet in the end, did Joseph blame God? Did Joseph become resentful toward God and his brothers for the challenges that he had to go through? No. What does the Scripture say? I know that you all meant it for evil. You, my brothers. You, Potiphar. You, prisoner who didn't remember me. You all meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So that by me, He could save some. Friends, we are like David when we forget the promises and faithfulness of God and the pathway to faith in the times of present crisis starts in the mind. We need to constantly remind ourselves that God is good and God is near. Do we have promises in that way? Absolutely we do. Do we, have pre- do, do we, have, uh, do we remember, remember times in which God has been near and He has been good to us? And we need to remember that God is working out everything for the good of His people. So what about you? What is this present crisis that you are facing right now? Can you say with confidence that God is working for your good? Or does it just feel too real that God is far away and maybe even opposed to you? You see God as a mean and exacting God who wants to pour out His wrath on you. Friends, God doesn't take vengeance on His own children. God loves His children. You may not have that present embrace where you you, you just have that special sense that He's near and He cares. But, But I can assure you on the authority of Scripture that He does. That He is present and He is near and He's working out every single thing in your life for your good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reminder of Your faithfulness and Your care in times of weakness. Lord, we often look to David as a man of great faith and strength, and yet we forget about times like this in 2 Samuel 7 and others where he turns his eyes off of You and tries to find momentary pleasure and relief from the cares of this world and forgets about how faithful of a God you are to your promises.
forgets about the, the regular acts of care that you had shown to him. Lord, we do that all the time as well. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed on you just like we did when we first believed. May you strengthen our faith and cause it to grow in the sense that that we have our eyes more closely fixed on you. Lord, it's not the amount of faith that's necessary. It's the object of our faith that we need to have it fixed on you. And so, Lord, help our unbelief cause us to believe even more and to be assured of your love and your care for us who are your children, that if you are for us, then who can be against us? And that you, if you did not spare your own Son, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? You are good and loving God, and we trust you. And we commit ourselves to you again tonight. So help us, Lord, to follow you. In times of present and ongoing maybe even chronic crisis problems, things that just seem to go on and on and on and never stop. Help us to trust you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.